Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, so let's just jump right into the news today. And one of the things that everybody seems to be talking about right now is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth feature film from writer-director Quentin Tarantino. The trailer for the new trailer, I guess the first official trailer, I think what we saw earlier was billed as a teaser. So now this is like the first full trailer has arrived online this morning. Uh, Let's just go around the circle really quickly. Chris, you wrote about this. Uh, What did you think about this trailer? Uh, I think it looks great. I'm a I'm a big Tarantino fan, and of course, he's a very good friend of mine, uh, as everyone who listens to the show knows. Uh, so, so uh, I I was already hyped for this to begin with, but this trailer um, really sold me even more. I try not to get um, uh, FOMO, fear of missing out, but today the movie premiered at Cannes, and I I have FOMO big time with this because I really wish. I was able to see this, and I hate that I gotta wait two months to see it. Yeah, the good news is that I think it was originally supposed to hit theaters in August, and now it's coming out on what July 26th, I think. 
Um, I think so, the 20, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we got, uh, you know, a shorter wait than usual, but um, or than expected, rather. Uh, Brad, what did you think about this trailer? Yeah, I'm fully on board for this trailer. Um, you know, it's it, it expands on kind of what we already saw in the earlier one. This is clearly, um, a, I guess, what looks like a lighter Quentin Tarantino movie, has a lot of uh, comedy in it, the performances from Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie look like they'll be fantastic, but there's clearly something a little bit dark and sinister hiding here since we know Charles Manson uh, and his uh, family slash cult is, is part of this story somehow. So I'm really interested to see how this all connects into a singular story. Yeah, I think it looks, uh, I mean, just tremendous. I can't, I can't wait to see it. I'm, I am shocked at how um, excited I am for it because, you know, we've been covering this movie for a long time and we've even seen some, some footage from it, but that earlier trailer didn't get me as hyped as I am right now. I think this is just like an exceptionally well edited trailer and it really showcases uh, what appears to be the full breadth of this story. And as you mentioned, Brad, hints at some of that darkness that I'm sure is going to be in this movie. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, we I, actually... do, I do wonder too, if uh, maybe w- the character that Leonardo DiCaprio was playing in that Nazi movie has some kind of ties to the, the quote unquote real people in Inglorious Bastards. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously it, it, it uh, that imagery I... recalls that, but um yeah, I had that same. My actual thought was like he's starring in a movie about the quote-unquote historical event from Inglorious Band. That's actually what, like my was my very first thought when I saw that shot. That that would be pretty cool and very Tarantino. I mean, he loves that kind of shit. So, um, yeah, I, I would not be remotely surprised if that ends up being true. Um, one of the things that uh, we wrote about, we've written a bunch about the the movie today alone, just because of the trailer. And uh, one of the other things is we did a quick roundup of some of the first reactions of the movie. As Chris mentioned earlier, it it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. So I just wanted to run through a couple of those quick reactions. We actually have, uh, I think, uh, the our full review for. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is being published on SlashFilm.com right now. So probably by the time you're listening to this, you can go to the site and read it. Well, actually, I'll try to link it in the show notes of this episode. But in the meantime, uh, Jason Gorber, who I think is writing the review for us, said that the movie is historically dubious, thematically brilliant. Tarantino finds his form in a film that could win the Palme d'Or or be picketed by audiences or maybe both. Thrilling, provocative, blackly comical, intensely unsettling masterwork. Um, Joe Utici says, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so gloriously, wickedly indulgent, compelling, and hilarious. The film Tarantino was born to make. The world is a more colorful place in Tarantino's Twilight Zone. Round two, please. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically the tone of a lot of these, uh, early reactions. Um, a couple people have said, uh, for example, Tim Grierson says, like a lot of recent Tarantino, this is baggy, self-indulgent, fascinatingly, fascinatingly its own thing and ambitiously conceived. Of course it's accomplished, sometimes dazzlingly so, but it ends up being as hit or miss as his last few. So for me, somebody who really has enjoyed a lot of Tarantino's work and especially his last few movies, I feel like The Hateful Eight is like uh, sort of an under unheralded uh, or underappreciated masterwork from him. Um, the idea that this is as good or maybe better than that is uh, is very exciting to me. Um, so I, I guess just to in, in the in the interest of brevity. Let's move things along to one more Once Upon a Time in Hollywood story, and that is uh, a couple of details that we learned about the movie itself. Um, 
as these reviews come out, I'm sure we'll be hearing a little bit more about this movie, but there was a really good Esquire, um, I guess, what would you call it, Chris? Just like a, a Q&A? It's like a profile of Tarantino, DiCaprio, and Brad Pitt just all sitting around in one room, like, shooting the breeze. It's a really good read. It's very interesting to just hear them all talking and uh we're not here but read them all talking and i would highly recommend it <laughs> yeah so in that uh that big piece um a, a few details about the movie were released and chris you wrote about them so what do we know now uh yeah so if you've been following this movie you know it's got a huge cast it's uh, one of the biggest casts uh in recent memory like even bigger than like the in of recent avengers films it feels like to me and uh, I know I was wondering, like, how do all these people fit in the film? Like, how is, you know, he going to focus on all of them? And while this article doesn't answer that specifically, it does reveal something we didn't know before. And that is that the film takes place on three specific days acting as, you know, your, your standard three act narrative. It's kind of like uh, the Steve Jobs movie, how that took place on three sp um, specific product launch days. So the first day is February 8th, uh, 1969. The second day is February 9th, 1969. And then the final day is August 8th, 1969, which uh, anyone who knows true crime or you know what have you will know that's the day the, the Manson family um, went to Sharon Tate's home and uh, killed everyone there. So it's three specific dates. Uh, the first two stories, like if you want to call them that, focus on Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and then the final story is focused on Margot Robbie's um, Sharon Tate. So, even though the film is star-studded, these three characters are kind of like our guides into this world, and, I, and I'm guessing all the other cast members will be will be bouncing off them. That's really fascinating that there's a six-month time jump in the movie. Um, I, I had not expected that. I sort of expected. You know, I didn't expect the the plot to be um, delineated that specifically, but it's odd that I wonder if there's something historically significant about those other days. Tarantino is such a, a student of this period of Los Angeles, and it seems to have made a huge impact on him and his even in his personal life. And I wonder if there's something specific about those days where, you know, something happened in the world or in the city that he wanted to include in there. Um, Chris, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I don't know the specific why he chose those dates. It only um, my only guess is, and I didn't. Uh, I should probably do more research on this. Is that it has something to do with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski moving to that area mm -hmm. where they lived, because the plot of the movie involves Sharon Tate being Leonardo DiCaprio's character's next door neighbor. So I'm guessing, in real life, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski moved to the house they were in sometime in February and that's where Tarantino introduces them as their neighbors and then he comes back to them in August. Yeah, might be. Interesting. All right, well, so from one story that takes place in 1969 to another, uh, Brad, Dan Aykroyd has written a Ghostbusters prequel show that is set in 1969. What do we know about this? Yeah, so uh, obviously there's a new Ghostbusters movie coming up in 2020. Um, it takes place after the events of Ghostbusters 1 and 2, uh, in pretty much in real time after the events of those movies. It doesn't take place in the same universe of Ghostbusters Answer the Call, because those two movies are set in different universes. <clears throat> and it seems like that 2020 movie might be the launching point for what uh, Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman uh, and their Ghost Core production banner hopes will be, um, I guess, like a new series of different projects based around Ghostbusters. Uh, because while he was promoting his Crystal Head Vodka 
uh, at um, some promotional tour, he talked to a Canadian news outlet about this new Ghostbusters project we hadn't heard of before that goes back to 1969 and follows Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, and Egon Spangler as uh, young Ghostbusters. Uh, Dan Aykroyd says, quote, I've written Ghostbusters High, where they meet in New Jersey in 1969, and we're looking to do that as probably a glorified feature or pilot within the next maybe five years. It would lead to a television project, uh, and I thought of Jason Reitman immediately for that. So this is a script that he's actually already given to Jason Reitman, and he hopes that uh, he'll tackle it after Ghostbusters 2020 comes out next year. Um, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this, because on one hand... Um, it's an interesting idea to think, kind of go back to before Ghostbusters and spend time with these characters, and it allows them to make a Ghostbusters movie with those characters without having to bring back the original cast. But I think going back all the way to their teenage years feels like too much, and like it would be a little bit too forced. Uh, like, I just, I'm just not sure how much exciting things can happen with teens during this time that could precede what happens to them in Ghostbusters, because like. It's, it's made clear in the original Ghostbusters movie that this is something that they've kind of been researching for a while, because when they encounter that ghost in the opening library scene, all Ray is talking about is with the data they have, they might be able to finally catch a ghost. So, like, they, they established that they've been researching paranormal activity and stuff for a while. And so I, I, just, I just don't know what you can do with teenagers. It just feels like they're just trying to veer into that Stranger Things, you know, kind of sweet spot, which we, it seems like the Ghostbusters 2020 movie is already trying to do as well. So I just, I, I don't know, do, we, do you guys think that this sounds interesting at all? I mean, Brad, you're the biggest Ghostbusters fan that I know, so if you have some hesitations about this, I can't imagine what Chris thinks, because I think on a recent episode, Chris, you were like, I think we're good with Ghostbusters, like, we're probably fine, so I, I yeah. mean, what do you think I, about this? Uh, you know, I love Ghostbusters. I love the original Ghostbusters. I like Ghostbusters too. I even love, you know, the, the remake everyone hates, but I don't think this is a good idea you know again we've said this before but what makes the original ghostbusters so good it's not really just the writing it's that cast that cast of really talented funny people who were all more or less familiar with each other they've been working with each other for years before they made that movie with the exception of you know ernie hudson so you know they already had that built-in chemistry and you're just you're not going to get that with new younger actors unless they cast like I don't know, like the Lonely Island or something like that, which I don't think they'll do. So <laughs> I, I just don't see that working. I also don't think this is going to happen. Dan Aykroyd has this sort of thing where he doesn't, he can't let go of the past. And I'm sure the minute he heard someone else was making a Ghostbusters movie, and that's this new one, he was like, well, I'll write one too. And he's probably just like, they'll probably eventually make mine too, right? And everyone's just like, humoring him like sure dan Aykroyd, we'll get around to that and it'll never actually happen yeah plus they've there's been a bunch of other ghostbusters projects that they have they talked about after answer the call was announced that have never come to fruition there was one that drew pierce wrote that the russos were supposed to direct with channing tatum involved there was uh, there's an animated ghostbusters movie that they've been talking about for years um there so there's there's been a lot that's been on the table that has been in development at ghost core that has never come to fruition so this Dan Aykroyd, you know, just, just has all these pipe dreams, and I feel like a lot of them won't come to fruition. But in this case, I feel like a lot of it just it depends on Ghostbusters 2020. My, honestly, what I would rather see is them set this series at a time when, like, Venkman and Ray and Egon are in their 20s, like in grad school. And maybe they are, like, 
uh, budding paranormal investigators, and as they keep trying to find real ghosts, but instead they keep like uncovering these fake ghost reports, almost like like a Scooby Doo series. <laughs> all right, so I have two two things, two thoughts about all, everything that you guys have just said. Number one, addressing Chris's comment about the chemistry of the cast in the original. What would you think if they pulled an Irishman on this and cast the original people? I mean, obviously they can't do it with um, Harold Ramis, who has since passed away, but with everybody else. And then did like the digital de-aging thing. Like if that works wonders in the Irishman and, and we're, you know, Scorsese has perfected that technology to such a degree that um, even the physicality of guys like De Niro and Pacino and all of that comes across really well. Would would that be something that you would be more interested in seeing, Chris, a younger version of these same actors? I mean, if you're going to do that, I'd rather they just like animate it, like just make it a cartoon. Just because how do I say this without like. All right. Let me, let me preface this by saying I am not fat shaming here, but these guys are older, fatter men now, and the de-aging is only going to work on their faces, and we all remember what they look like as younger, thinner men, and I just feel like putting younger faces on their current bodies, <laughs> it would just look really like weird and off-putting, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I mean, and again, like same same sentiment applies here but like the same thing for de niro right like the body just changes over time so like i'm sure scorsese is working on that as well i mean i know on a recent episode you're talking about how he was he was really like concentrating on the eyes and what what that looks like but i think they're probably going to have to do some significant work to reshape these people's physical bodies into what they looked like you know 20 or 30 or however many years earlier right the only the only thing i can think of with that is in the irishman even though yes we know what young robert de niro looks like he's not playing young robert de niro in the flashback so they can sort of get away with him having a different body than the young robert de niro had but if you're doing the young ghostbusters we know what these characters look like when they're young and if you're putting you know we remember what their their you know their physical bodies looked like in that first movie and if mm-hmm. you're gonna you know <laughs> it just it would just look weird so i don't know maybe they could put their faces on younger bodies but at that point you should you're you're getting like into weird it's like rogue one territory where they brought back peter cushing you know from beyond the grave so i, I don't re- <laughs> they did that with captain america when they put chris evans face on that scrawny body Right, yeah. So I guess you can do it, but could it's we really wa- expensive? Yes, and for like a whole <laughs> movie, it would just be like really weird. Like yeah. I don't know. So, so that leads me into my second point, which Chris, you actually touched on here. Uh, Brad, what do you think about this? Should this project just be animated? Like I know you mentioned that there was talk about a new animated Ghostbusters project in the works, but that one hasn't come to fruition yet. Should this be something, you know, so they can just brush all of those concerns under the table and not have to worry about that at all? Do you, would you rather see this be an animated project? Would you have a little bit more hope in, in the concept if that's the media or the way they went about choosing to tell this story? Uh, I mean, I guess maybe I feel like it's a little bit tough though. It, I'd almost rather them do it if it were an animated series that was a prequel to, like, the real Ghostbusters. Because I I think it would be weird to have an animated prequel connected to a live-action franchise. Um, Granted, Star Wars did it with the Clone Wars, but that also wasn't necessarily the most well-received movie, you know, that was released in theaters tied to the Star Wars franchise. So 
I guess I'm not opposed to it, um, you know, but like it's if it's good, as long as it's going to be a series, maybe they can make it work. But I just I feel like mixing the the mediums like that is just just a little too weird. Yeah. So we'll have to see if this is another one of those Stan Aykroyd projects that never never actually makes it or uh, if this one actually goes forward. But um, so speaking of uh, I think that's a, a ghost core is set up on the Sony lot. Right, Brad? Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah they have their, their own production offices. Uh, would, and I'll actually be able to check those out myself soon because I'm going to uh, Ghostbusters Fan Fest that second weekend in June and see uh, what's happening there. Oh, cool. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Uh, yeah. So some from one uh, Sony property to another um, Sony is has long launched a new, I guess, a, a studio called PlayStation Productions that is going to be adapting its video games and films into, or video games into films and TV shows. So this is going to be led by somebody named uh, Asad Kizilbash, and uh, who, who, as far as I could tell, has just worked in marketing for the God of War movies, or the, the second and third God of War movies. And then uh, it's going to be overseen by the chairman of Worldwide Studios at Sony Interactive Entertainment, uh, Sean Layden. Basically, this is Sony creating a company where they're already in production on its first slate of projects, and they've set up shop, a shop on the, the Sony lot as well, but they're creating a, a specific company devoted to uh, their PlayStation projects. It says that they have a library of more than 100 original properties, some of which have already been made into movies and and you know have received mixed reception like the long-running tomb raider games um and movies as well there have been several of those at this point and the whole thing is instead of licensing out their ip to other studios they have such a knowledge of how these playstation games work and how the playstation community uh interacts with them and and the aspects of them that resonate with this community that they are basically just trying to do everything in-house themselves. Um, the Hollywood Reporter broke this story, and they, they mentioned that this might help uh, the company avoid disasters like big-budget efforts like uh, 2016's Assassin's Creed or Warcraft that bombed at the box office and generally got pretty weak reviews. But the thing about that is Ubisoft, if I'm, I'm pretty sure this is correct, I have not looked this up, but I think I remember writing about this at the time, that Ubisoft created, which is like the company that makes the Assassin, uh, Assassin's Creed games, they created their own movie studio. Like, they basically did the same thing that PlayStation Productions is doing here for the same reason. Like, they, they created their own sort of spin-off um, film branch of the company devoted to adapting its own games into movies and Assassin's Creed still ended up being a box office disaster. So I'm not sure that just the idea on its own is going to be enough and the fact that they have like people who are, you know, familiar with the PlayStation properties and all that uh developing this I I'm not sure if that's going to be enough to um <laughs> you know just to be like a a recipe for success but um Brad, I know you recently got a, a PlayStation 4, or, and I know that really none of us here are like hardcore gamers. I, I play a handful of video games here and there, but are there any PlayStation games that you can think of that have not been turned into movies yet, or TV shows even, if, if the story calls for it, that you would be interested in seeing? Um, Gosh, I don't know. I mean, there are so many cool video games that have interesting concepts, but it's hard to turn those concepts into a movie that is will be satisfying to players and um fits the parameters that you need to make a good story i i feel like 
maybe the most accessible one is probably God of War because that has such a such an epic um you know story at its center. But at that point, you know, are you just remaking the cinematics you know that play within the game itself? Uh, you know, Last of Us is also an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that that brush is so close to being familiar to other zombie movies that there's nothing that like immediately calls out to me that's like, oh, I need, I need that movie. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's just video game movies have been so disappointing for such a long time that I just I don't I don't know. I don't trust anybody to do it to do it right. Yeah. The only thing that gives me any semblance of hope here is that they in this Hollywood Reporter piece, they address that point specifically. They say the real challenge is how do you take 80 hours of gameplay and make it into a movie? The answer is you don't. What you do is you take that ethos and you write from there specifically for the film audience. You don't try to retell the game in a movie. So that that's, you know, I guess a positive thing. And then they also made some sort of mention that like they don't uh, because they're not um, because they're a separate branch and they don't have to sort of answer to the demands of Hollywood in the same way that some of these other, you know, umbrella company uh, leaders do. It says, uh, we don't have to rush to market. We don't have uh, a list of X number of titles must be done in this year. None of that. The company has been very accommodating to our ambition around this to grow this in a, a measured, thoughtful way. So it sounds like they're really going to take their time and try to pick the right people involved in whatever projects they end up working on. So we'll have to track this as it goes. But uh, I just figured, you know, since this whole thing was just announced, it would be worth bringing up uh, and letting everybody know that this is supposed to be happening. So we'll see if they can fare maybe a little bit better than Ubisoft Productions or whatever their their branch was called. Uh, in the meantime, let's talk about something that I think took all of us, I think it's fair to say this took all of us by surprise, this announcement, that a True Lies TV show is coming to Disney+, Plus, and it's from a, uh, a surprising source. Chris, what do we know about this? Uh, that source is Mick G, the director of the Charlie's Angels films, the original ones. And in writing this story, I actually learned that he's been sitting on a True Lies TV show since at least 2017. I guess everyone just forgot. But back in 2017, Fox was trying to make their own uh, True Lies TV series, and he was going to direct the pilot. Uh, he, he, he wasn't writing it. He was just directing the pilot. Now, years later, that property is going to end up on Disney+, Plus because, of course, Disney now owns 20th Century Fox, and McGee isn't just directing, he's like developing the series. So it's gone from him just having, you know, a directorial role to being the guy shaping the entire show. So he's turning the James Cameron action movie True Lies into a TV series for Disney Plus. So, Chris, do you, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say, especially since you cover a lot of the streaming stuff, that you're going to subscribe to Disney Plus. It's at a pretty low price point, uh, and there's just so much content there. Would you be interested in watching a True Lies show? Man, I don't know. I really like True Lies the movie. I think it's great, but what makes it great is all the elements that this series won't have. What makes it great is, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis and James Cameron, and none of those people have anything to do with this show i mean you know the concept is fine and other shows have have already done the you know spies living a secret life i mean the americans is basically that without comedy so it's not like the you know it's not a proven idea you can make that idea work i just don't know if he'll be able to compare to that the, the movie yeah, and the the Bill Paxton uh, role in the original True Lies is so great, too. I can't imagine somebody else trying to step in and fill a similar part if they end up doing more of like a straight adaptation. Right, yeah. Um, 
Brad, what do you think? Are, are you in, into the idea of a True Lies show? Do you think this property is worth expanding on in that way? All I know is when I think of great American action, I think of McG. I mean, <laughs> Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. The music video for All Star by Smash Mouth. <laughs> These are all classic movies and projects with so much action and flavor and style I can't imagine anybody doing True Lies better than McG. <laughs> I think, to be fair to McG, I think the only thing I've actually seen of his was Terminator Salvation, which I, d- I did not like very much, but I, I don't feel comfortable dissing him on on a... Uh, Wait, a... you've never seen the Charlie's Angels movies? I have not. No, I haven't. You are missing out on a plate of nonsense, my friend. <laughs> I uh, mean... I, I, I honestly, I, I do not like McG as a filmmaker at all. I, I think he is... A, a popcorn filmmaker in the worst way imaginable. He like, uh, it's just he he brings music video style to movies in a very upsetting way, and I just I, I don't I don't like him at, at the least. All right, well yeah maybe I guess theoretically he would just be you know producing and maybe like the brains behind this and maybe he'd get some interesting people to come in behind the camera. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to keep our eyes on this one as it as it moves forward. Uh, but let's talk about another Disney Plus show and that is the Falcon and the Winter Soldier or. Falcon and Winter Soldier. They really need to just like officially release something from this so we know yeah. what the actual name is. When I was writing this up for my story, I confirmed this. It actually is called Falcon and Winter Soldier. There's no the, which just sounds weird to me. I don't know why they would get rid of that, but I don't know. Great. Thanks a lot, Deadline, who referred to it as the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. All right. So let's refer to it by its real thing, Falcon and Winter Soldier. So this is a show that obviously will star Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan. They're going to be reprising their roles from the Captain America movies. um, And we don't really know many details about this series yet. We know it's going to be six episodes. It's going to be airing on Disney+. Plus. It's going to be uh, a canonical story that you know, actually matters to the world of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, But now in a a new report that broke last night, the project has a director in the form of Carrie Scogland, who has directed a bunch of episodes of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Um, She's directed The Walking Dead. Uh, She actually has worked in the MCU before directing uh, an episode of the now-canceled Netflix show The Punisher. So there's that. Um, And in addition to this director news, which I I think is pretty cool, I think uh, Scogland is a really good director, especially in those Handmaid's Tale episodes, so I'm interested to see what she does behind the camera there. But in addition to that news, there's also some casting news for the show. So obviously Mackie and Stan are coming back to reprise their roles, but uh, according to Deadline, Daniel Bruhl and Emily Van Camp are also in talks to reprise their roles in this miniseries. Uh, Daniel uh, Bruhl played Baron Zemo in Captain America Civil War, and Emily Van Camp played Sharon Carter, a.k.a. Agent 13, in, I think, two of the uh, Captain America movies, Winter Soldier and Civil War. And um, those movies really tried to make us think that Sharon and uh, Chris Evans uh, Captain America slash Steve Rogers were going to be a romantic pair, but it didn't really work very well. Uh, Sharon Carter is Peggy Carter's great niece, I think, is the way that the family tree works there. Um, but in terms of Daniel Bruhl playing Baron Zemo, he was left alive at the end of Civil War. But Brad, I know that you're you know constantly covering superhero news for Slash Film. What do you think about the reemergence of Baron Zemo? Do you think? What sort of role do you think he could play? Because he was basically the guy who orchestrated the schism between uh, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers in Civil War. Uh, He was left alive, but 
what do you think about his potential role in this show and maybe like where it places it on the timeline? So it's, I mean, he obviously gets apprehended at the end of Captain America Civil War and we're left to presume that he's being held captive somewhere and alive. And if the show is going to focus on Falcon and Winter Soldier, we probably have to remember that uh, what Baron Zemo was doing in Captain Civil War tied into Winter Soldier because uh, when he starts off the movie, he's looking for that ledger so that he can activate uh, Winter Soldier and use the brainwashing technique uh, that S.H.I.E.L.D. used to keep him keep him active as an assassin. So if anything, maybe in, his, in Baron Zemo's time that he spent trying to track down this ledger and find uh, Bucky and, uh, you know, enact this plan, there are some things that he knows that whatever Falcon and Winter Soldier, uh, you know, whatever mission they have, whatever they're trying to figure out, maybe he has information that they need. And it's a situation like um, with uh, the show Blacklist on NBC or like with Hannibal, where they need somebody who is dangerous, who's kind of this, this crazy person to help them get done what they need to get done because he's the only one who has, you know, the information they need. Yeah, that sounds like as good a theory as I've heard yet. Um, we know that Malcolm Spellman, who is uh, writing or was a writer on Empire, is writing this series, and that the show is going to be arriving on Disney Plus in August of 2020. So that's I think the first time that we've gotten a an official release, or I don't know about official, but that's what Deadline reports anyway. Uh, Disney Plus has not officially said that, but uh, August 2020 is what they're They appear to be targeting that date. Um, But Chris, you wrote a little bit about this show yesterday because uh, Sebastian Stan, I guess, was doing some sort of interview and he uh, talked a little bit about what we can expect from the Bucky Barnes character in this show. What did he say? Uh, Yeah, so his quote was, I think it's time for Bucky to go out there and have an identity outside of the circumstances that we've met him through. So I don't know. He might do all kinds of things. He might even go on a date. I don't know. Scary world out there, you know, apps, things like that, and so on. That's the quote. So So he's horrified uh, about appetizers then. (laughs) Yes. uh, Either he's going to Chili's to get some uh, potato skins or he's talking about iPhone apps. I'm not sure. But... Uh, you know, it boils down to, you know, Bucky, you know, he's he's a man out of time, just like Captain America was. You know, he's from uh, a long time ago and he's really hasn't had a chance to experience much of modern day life. You know, Captain America got, you know, some breaks here and there, but Bucky's been uh, kind of, you know, on the run or hiding or a mind washed murderer for a long time. So he hasn't really had a chance to enjoy everyday things. So it sounds like uh, Sebastian Stan is hitting at sort of like a humorous sort of subplot where the winter soldier is, is enjoying the 21st century for the very first time. Now that, you know, a lot of the, the threats of end game and infinity war are over. Yeah. That sounds like something that, you know, certainly the movies don't have time to get into, but that's kind of like the ideal uh, playing field for these Disney Plus shows, right? Like the idea of of exploring those those downtime moments for these characters and fleshing these characters out a little bit more. Brad, what do you think about uh, Bucky's or, or Stan's comments about Bucky? Are you looking forward to the show? Yeah, you know, I, I think maybe <laughs> he's being probably a little bit more lighthearted about it than the, the show we'll dive into, yeah. uh, you know. I, I can't imagine we'll get, you know, an entire episode of where he's using Tinder or something like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like like Chris said, you know, Bucky's a man out of time just like Captain America is. And we only really got a taste of how Captain America adapted to modern life, you know, in the beginning of Winter Soldier. We see that he has that 
that list of things that he's trying to check out and get through. So he understands, you know, more pop culture references and experiences more music and film. So I, I think there's definitely uh, an interesting angle with that uh, to be ex- explored there, especially, you know, if give, giving Bucky another human relationship to have other than the one that he had with uh, with Cap. So there's there's a lot of potential to do some cool things with Bucky as a character. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so we, yeah, August 2020 is when the show is supposed to arrive and Disney Plus, the new streaming service, is going to be launching on November 12th, 2019. So... Uh, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that. And uh, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. Where can people find more of our work online? Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, I'm at Slash Film every day, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 Brad? Also on Slash Film all the live long day. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and also on my own podcast, Go Flix Yourself. I am also on SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked in the episode notes here. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps out there. And feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And if you do that, make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air in an upcoming episode. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really helps us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.